0: God sings All our sins are washed away Yes, our God sings Oh, hallelujah Our God sings All our sins are washed away Yes, our God sings Oh, God so long.
1: taught me that the most important thing a father can leave to his kids is not what he leaves for them, but what he leaves in them. You operated heavy machinery by day, and a tiny toothbrush by night. You lifted me up even higher than you could lift yourself. You told me stories of warriors and dragons. Not to convince me that dragons were real, but to show me that evil can be overcome. You mastered the art of carrying a sleeping child, fixing little toys, and making the perfect sandwich. You showed me that you don't have to have superpowers to be a superhero. You knew that there is no quality time without quantity time. You cleaned up my messes, impersonated my favorite animals, and wiped away my tears. You understood that your greatest gift to our family was not your productivity, but your presence. You were focused, but interruptible. Brave, but compassionate. Strong, but gentle. Because there is nothing so strong as gentleness, and nothing so gentle as real strength. Thanks,
2: Dad. Well, good morning, Carpenter's Way. Those of you in the room and those of you watching online, we have lots of folks traveling this week and uh, celebrating Father's Day with your family. And uh, I am glad to see you doing that. We hope you have a very, very special day. I was uh, thinking about what to say this morning about fathers and fathering. And I I came up with something a little bit different. Um, As you know, I am a wannabe Texan. Uh, That is code for Julie and I, and our kids have only been here for 15 years this summer. And uh, so I was thinking about what's going on in the world and kind of what an ugly time it is. And as Southerners, you are under attack by people who don't know you. So having realized that, I wanted to share with you some things that I have come to love about this place. And I mean, we love living here. Of all the places I live, I love Texas. I love East Texas. So with that in mind, I'd like to share with you, I think I have like eight things that that I love about you guys. Number one, I love the Texas attitude that I can't define any different than hold my beer. That is if somebody says that, something interesting is about to happen. And uh, um, for those of you who don't think pastors know what beer is, I'm not advocating drinking. I'm simply saying that when somebody says that, grab your phone, it's going to be interesting. I love that about Southern culture. Number two, um, I love how much fun y'all can have in a mud puddle. I have never, nowhere I've ever lived can you do more with mud? I mean, what you do to your car, what you, I mean, it is incredible. Your kids, you put your kids in the mud. I love that mindset. Um, let's see, what's it? Oh, bacon, bacon. What Southerners do with, what Texans do with bacon. It's a gift. You could take a perfectly good, bad tasting vegetable, wrap it in bacon and it is good. You you wrap bad-tasting game meat in bacon, and it, it's incredible, and I am impressed with that. Um, I'm impressed with how you can fight with each other, but if somebody else badmouths your family, they're in trouble. Something bad is going to happen there. I love your commitment to family. You're willing to criticize each other, but don't let anybody else criticize you. Um, I love how proud you are of your heritage. I love that. I love that when you say, remember the Alamo, you mean, remember the Alamo. And it, it is, depending on who you're with, it's either a compliment or a threat. I mean, it's it's incredible, but I do love that you love your heritage. And uh, yeah, I was told when I went to London about six or seven years ago, um, that I needed to find the, uh, the embassy of the Republic of Texas, which still exists in, in London, and I, I did find it. And that was the most looked at picture that I put online. So that was interesting. Um, I would like to say, I don't care what the news is saying right now, and this is my experience. All of you, you can deny it, but it's true. I have never met a Texan who isn't willing to feed somebody if they're hungry with their own money and their own food, no matter what color they are or what their socioeconomic status. I have never seen that. In 15 years, not once, have I ever met a Texan, even somebody who may bend Uh, against every race or may struggle with racism or classism. I've never met a Texan that wouldn't feed somebody no matter what if they were hungry. Uh, And that's for those of you who don't live here. Don't believe the hype. Um, Something else. Um, And I want to remind you, those of you watching from up north, that the gentleman, uh, Mr. Floyd, lived in Houston but was killed in Minneapolis. Um, Racism is not a problem of the South. It's a problem of the heart. Enough on that. Um, I love how much you love your family. Oh my gosh. We have lived in, I've lived in California. I have lived in Chicago. I've lived in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Ohio. I keep getting thrown out of states. Um, But I've lived in all those places. And nowhere we've ever lived have people loved their family as much as y'all. I mean, if if you have a cousin or a nephew that's twice removed or five times removed and they have a need, you will invite them to sleep on your floor. We have have talked about that a lot. You'll invite them in. You'll feed them. You will let them stay for months until they can get back on their feet. I've never seen anything like it. I love how you love family. Um, I love how you father. Uh, Now we're getting to Father's Day. Man, I... I have, uh, there is, there, you guys, Texans, and I'm not talking about Southerners, I've never lived anywhere else, but Texans love family. Um, and fathers love their kids. Even, even if they're daughters and they're Texas men. I know, I know we, the hype is that, that we all, you know, your boy, going to take him fishing, going to take him hunting. Texans, for those of you who aren't from here, they often name their daughters after the father. That's not uncommon. And if a man has a daughter He's twice as fervent to teach her how to shoot. I'm not exactly sure why. I think it's protection in case she meets a Yankee. Just kidding. But, but, but they, you, you take your kids, your daughters and your sons, you take them fishing, you take them hunting. Uh, that takes me to another one. I think I'm way past seven or, or eight now. But, but another thing that I love about this culture, you can have a very humble home, but I'll be darned if you don't have a, a $70,000 bass boat. I mean, and that, that is because... <laughs> You love family. You put everybody in that boat, and there's really, it's not a bass boat. It's a ski boat. It's a tubing boat. Uh, I love how fathers fa- love their kids and cuddle their kids and love to tell them stories. But oh my goodness, you get a father behind behind the wheel of a boat. Their goal is to hurt their kid on the tube behind them. It goes a little bit along with Hold My Beer, but you can't say that because they're children. But I, I, I love how you love your kids. And I, I got to tell you, now, now I'm at the end. I love how your kids love you. Um, I mean, there is, and I'm not just talking fathers and mothers, but grandfathers. Uh, When uh, this has been kind of a learning curve for us, for me as a pastor, but when somebody loses an aunt or uncle or a grandfather or a great-grandfather, boy, it is not uncommon to hear. Actually, most of the time it's like, well, that that was her uncle, but he was like a father to her. And that's true, that is absolutely true. There is something in this culture, and I think it goes from your great-great-grandparents who came over during when Mexico owned this land and all. They bound together and they came as families and they settled on land, but that has not left. I, and, and I gotta tell you something, the attitude of the Alamo in that period hasn't left you. I mean, there is boldness and there is courage in you and there's a fight in you, but it's mostly geared towards taking care of your family. And uh, as I was thinking about Father's Day here, I love that about you. You are an easy people to love. I don't care the hype out of New York and LA. You are an easy people to love. And we are honored to be here. And I'm honored to have my kids raised here. We celebrated this year um, two members of our family that are actually uh, native Texans. That would be Zach married a native Texan girl, Hannah. And then my grandson is the first Wilkie that is a native Texan. And he's already telling me that I'm not a Texan, and it's it's offensive. He's only four months old, but he already when he cries he says, "Don't talk to me. You're not a Texan. Get me a Texan, hurry." But this is a wonderful place to live, you guys. Don't believe the hype, hype in the media, and you guys have a great day today. I think I think the women of Texas like Father's Day more than the men do. I think they like to celebrate their husbands, and in some ways they celebrate their kids. They buy gifts for their sons and. And uh, I just wanted you to know that while the world is bashing you down, you're pretty cool. And we know, because we've lived all over the place, and we love being here. And uh, happy Father's Day, men. I hope you have a really good day. Make sure that any vegetables you eat are wrapped in bacon. that note. Did I go one too many? We're, we're a fat people, aren't we? OK. All right, so I have a couple more announcements. Happy Father's Day. Um, a couple more announcements. Uh, I'm really excited to tell you this. This is great we are getting all new chairs in the worship center this week, and and that is very exciting. I'm so glad you clapped, because I'm going to ask you to do something when the service is over, but um, for those of you watching online, for those of you who have never been in the worship center of Carpenter's Way, and there's quite a lot of you watching, um, our chairs look like we hand out cigarettes on Sunday. There's, there's like cigarette, there's cigarette burns in them, and this is Texas, and we don't ask questions, but These chairs, uh, some of them are good. Steve has been working really hard over the last month to pick out the really good chairs, and we're going to be donating them to other ministries in the community. But um, this last year, somebody gave a gift for us to buy new chairs, and and we ordered them, and it's taken forever for them to get their factory back up and working, but they're coming Wednesday. And uh, so those of you who clapped, you're responsible to pick up the chairs in the worship center today. (laughs) No. Guys, if you could help us right after the service, we're going to pick up the chairs and stack them in eight and then wheel them out of here. And then if you're available on Wednesday uh, during the day, we'll let you know on Facebook what time. But we could sure, they're going to, a truck's going to deliver chairs and we got to unwrap them and bring them in here and and set this place up. Um, uh, It's uh, every week we get a little closer to meeting back as a whole church and we're we're looking forward to that. It looks like it may be the fall. uh, And, uh, but we miss you. Let us know if you have need. Thank you for your faithful service to the Lord. Um, but we're excited. There's a lot of new stuff when you come back. There's a new building, an educational wing that we finished in. Our, uh, our, we have a, a room for mothers that are nursing uh, with a TV in it you can watch. We have a new overflow room. It's, it's a wonderful thing. We've done that all in, in your absence, and we're excited to show that off to you. Uh, the only other thing I want to mention is uh, VBS and summer activities. We're doing an online summer VBS. And that information is on the Facebook page if you don't have Facebook. If you'll call the office or email Alicia, she'll get that information to you, her Casey. And uh, we're very excited about what we're going to be doing virtually this summer. And uh, so that's that's all the announcements. Happy Father's Day. I'm going to pray and then we'll uh, commit the service to the Lord. Father, I thank you for allowing Julie and Anna and Zach and myself to move to this wonderful state. Uh, Father, I thank you that you have allowed us to uh, do life with these wonderful people who care for people. Lord, we may not like everybody, but we sure do love them. It's, it's uh, You haven't called us to be friends with everybody. You've called us to serve everybody. And I thank you for a flock and a family and a community that does that in spades. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that uh, you would raise up men and women of God in this community to stand against the lies that are... that. Uh, Father, may we just stand up for you. Lord, we want to serve you. We want to honor you. And I thank you that you invented fatherhood. I thank you that you identified us as your children and you as our father. So this is a special day, and I pray that you would bless the fathers of Carpenters. Way And those who want to be fathers and haven't been able to become a father at this point, would you bring them comfort? Make them a great uncle or a great brother. Lord Jesus, may we turn our eyes upon you now and find great joy in your face. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
0: Just a reminder, if you're in the room, you're more than welcome to stand and worship with us. If you're watching from home, uh, join in in your living room. At your name, the mountain shaking crumble. At your name, the oceans roar and tumble. At your name, the angels will bow. The earth will rejoice. Your people cry out. your name, filling up the skies with endless praise, endless praise, Yahweh, Yahweh, we love to shout your name, oh Lord. At your name, creation sings your story. At your name, the angels will bow, the earth will rejoice, your people your name, filling up the skies with endless praise, endless praise, Yahweh, Yahweh, we love to shout your name, oh Lord, no one like our God, and there is no one like our God, we will praise you, praise you, there's no one like our God, we will sing There is no one like our God. We will praise You, praise You. There is no one like our God. We will sing, we will sing. There is no one like our God. We will. Shout your name, shout your name Filling up the skies with endless praise Endless praise, Yahweh, Yahweh We love to shout your name, oh Lord It's fallen from the clouds Strange and lovely sound. I hear it in the thunder and the rain. It's ringing in the sky like cannons in the night. The music of the universe plays. You are holy, great and mighty the moon and the stars declare who you are and i'm so unworthy but And free, the song of galaxies reaching far beyond the Milky Way. Let's join in with the sound. Come on, let's sing it out as the music of the universe plays. The you are hope. so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Once a sinner, now I'm clean Once condemned, now I'm made free He turned my darkness into light And now I see Once in ashes, there's beauty Once in pieces, I'm complete, and my Redeemer now resides. He lives in me. Oh, He is alive, and I am.
3: Do your...
2: that song. I want to remind you, my friends, whether you are Carpenter's Way or not, my saved and unsaved friends, my black and white friends, my brown friends, my Asian friends, salvation, hope, peace is only found in God. It really is through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's it. And uh, if you do not know him today, we would love to introduce you. We do not want to make you a Baptist. We want to make you a child of the King. And that is done through confessing your sin, admitting you're a sinner, and then only Jesus Christ can forgive sin. And uh, if you call upon the name of the Lord and you make him the ruler of your life, you will be saved. Romans 10, 10 through 13 says that. Um, This morning's message is predominantly for believers. And so if you are not a child of God this morning... You listen in, and I pray that today is the day of salvation, but it, it really isn't going to be very encouraging. Um, so uh, I want to jump right into it this morning. Uh, the week that we often, the church refers to as Passion Week or the week before Christ's death or his arrest, death, burial, and resurrection begins with what we know as the Triumphal Entry or, or, or Palm Sunday. Uh, now, I'd like to do a little backpedaling regarding my comments of recent weeks on Palm Sunday. Um, because I want to make it clear that while Palm Sunday actually is a very tragic day in the life of the Hebrew nation, because they declared him king as long as he did what they wanted. But three days later, four days later, when I find out that he came to do his own thing, they want him dead. So I have always said that Palm Sunday is a tragic day. Yet the truth is, it is the fulfillment of a prophecy that God gave to Daniel where the Son of Man would be accepted as the king and ride into the city, the, great, the, the capital city of Israel, and uh, be declared clean, king. God would present his Messiah. Uh, it even tells us how many years it would be until that happened. So in that sense, Palm Sunday was a great day because God's plan, although it was bad for rejecting humans, people who don't follow God, it was wonderful for God's plan. And so no matter what I said in haste in the past, we're going to continue to celebrate it. And yes, I did receive a phone call from Alicia Bonin telling me that the children will still wave palm branches every year on Palm Sunday. So with that being said, I'm backpedaling because I'm frankly afraid of Alicia. Um, So, uh, but anyway, it is a good day in that God's plan of presenting himself. This is his, we talk all the time about his second coming. This was his first coming. And he presents himself as the king. Uh, now, they love that. The Jews love that right up until they realize he's here to do his own kingly thing, not what they want him to do. And then they kill him. The second coming, well, that's, that's a whole different story. He will come on a white horse as a, as a militaristic king, rebuilding the nation of Israel in what we call the millennial kingdom. And that's a discussion for another day. But I want to be clear that the first coming of Jesus was born in a manger, and he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. The second coming of Jesus, he will ride into Jerusalem on a white horse. So, uh, just to give you some context. On to the context of today's text, where we find ourselves. For those of you who haven't been with us, we have been studying for 59 weeks. This is the 59th week of this study. Uh, it's a, I know it's a short series on. Uh, you, if you don't start laughing, I'm going to start laughing at my own jokes. But uh, what this is is what we took is we decided we wanted to relook at who Jesus is. We live in a culture where people are kind of reinventing Jesus, whether you know it or not. Uh, it, it, if if you feel that social justice is the call of the church, all of a sudden we take words that Jesus said and we make him a social justice warrior. If you come, um, if you have a tendency or you come from a group that wants to see same-sex attraction as acceptable in the church, you're going to find things that Jesus says and you're going to rewrite them to fit your agenda. If you are self-righteous legalist uh, that claims to be a follower of Jesus, you're going to find legalism from the Old Testament to make your point. And so about a a little, well, well over a year ago, Uh, we started a series called Who Is This Man? It's on the screen behind me. Uh, Who Is This Man? And what we did is I've tried to take uh, a chronological look of the Gospels. Uh, Now, not every story we went through, but uh, we hit the major stories of the Scriptures. Uh, All four Gospels tried to put him in order uh, chronologically from his birth all the way to where we find ourselves today. And we find ourselves right now in the middle of Passion Week. So we're somewhere around Wednesday of the week he'll be arrested. And just just to bring you up to to speed so you know where we are, Uh, so Jesus rides in on Sunday, right before this, Palm Sunday, he rides into Jerusalem on a colt, a donkey's colt, and the people are excited. They have heard he raised Lazarus a couple weeks before. It actually tells us in the Gospels that that's why most of them have come to see him because Lazarus was raised from the dead. Many had seen the living Lazarus after they had seen the dead Lazarus, so they wanted to know this healer. Others had heard about it, and so it says that most of the crowd on Palm Sunday gathered to see this Resurrector, this Jesus, this, this Messianic character, and they were excited about him because they had heard rumors that he fed the hungry, that he healed the sick, and so, man, what, what a great king. The, the, the Jews, and I want to I remind you that especially on Passover, What they are remembering is God's deliverance of the Hebrew people from slavery in the hands of Egyptians. They accredited Moses for that, and so their prayer for a messianic figure from God was that God would send another military leader who would release them from the 600 years of enslavement or oversight that that Gentiles have had over them. You will remember that this begins with Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, uh, you know that story because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego happens in this period. Daniel happens during this period. It, uh, it goes from Babylon falls then to Persia, Persia to Greece, Greece to Rome, and now we find that the Hebrew nation is under the dominance of Rome. And they are crying out from God. They are mis- misinterpreting Old Testament prophets who they say are claiming that God's Messiah is going to, uh, in the spirit of Moses, redeem them, release them, deliver them. And so there's a lot of talk, especially on Palm Sunday, there's a lot of talk during Passover week of this Redeemer. So what Jesus did on Palm Sunday was he rides in, the people declare him their king. We want you to be king, Hosanna, he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, they're talking about, you know, this is the guy God has promised us, and they follow him, and we talked about the parade. They don't just stand on the sidelines, which is often pictured, but they actually surround him, and they walk with him, and they sort of expected him to march to where Pilate was, the Roman uh, the Roman capital of that town, or it's not the right word, capital, but the leadership, the, 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 the place where Jesus will be tried in his court, and they expected Jesus to walk into there, tell Pilate off, overtake them, and then walk into the temple and and begin leading there. But that's not what he does. On Palm Sunday, it tells us that he rode right into town, the crowd gathers, and he leads them into the temple courts. Well, even following him there, they expected that Jesus would declare the deliverance from Roman domination, but you know what he does. Instead of declaring uh, deliverance from Roman domination, he turns over the tables in the temple, which are there, Um, and very, very busy because people were buying and selling uh, things that they would need, supplies for their Passover celebration, the Passover lamb, which takes us all the way back to Exodus, which told them how to celebrate the Passover. So Jesus not only rebukes uh, the merchandisers, as you often hear, and the religious leaders, but he actually rebukes the buyers, and he tells them that this house that was supposed to be a place of prayer they have turned a place where, and forget the word prayer, a place where they could come and meet with God, where they could get on their face before him, where they could meet with his leaders and get free grace. They've turned it into a place where you buy and sell Judaism. And so Jesus turns the tables over and he rebukes both the, both the, the sellers and the buyers, and they had to be absolutely shocked. Well, that is on Sunday of this week, and for the rest of the week, Basically, Jesus comes and goes, he leaves in the evenings, and he camps out on the Mount of Olives, and he comes back every day, and he teaches and does miracles, and he preaches in the temple courts. Now, we've talked about some of those lessons already, and after he teaches, you remember uh, in last week's text that, that the religious leaders finally get fed up with his teaching, and they, they approach him. In last week's text, their question to his, him was, who gives you the right? to do what you've been doing, and we talked about that. Uh, What was he doing? He was healing the sick and raising the dead and making the lame walk and making the blind to see and making the deaf to hear, the mute to talk and preaching the kingdom. And their question is, what gives you the right to do that? And Jesus has a discussion, and that's last week's message, and I encourage you to watch that because it's very relevant to where we are. Uh, After that conversation, well... We find ourselves this morning, middle of that week in Luke chapter 21, verses 1 to 4. While Jesus was in the temple, he watched the rich people dropping their gifts in the collection box. Then a poor widow came by and dropped two small coins. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to his disciples, that poor widow has given more than all of the rest of them, for they have given a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything that she has. Jesus didn't just preach and heal all the time. He lived. And it's hard, of us, it's hard for us to imagine that. I encourage you to watch a, a video series. It's an eight series thing. You, you gotta get on the app for it. If you email me or text me, I can tell you where to find it. But it's a, it's a recent uh, a series of 40 minute episodes that are dramatizing the life of Jesus. And it really plays the, the characters of the disciples well. You kind of see life during that. And uh, it's, it's called the chosen, and it's fantastic. But it's hard for us in the way that we've been taught in Sunday school and, and church growing up to see Jesus doing anything other than teaching and preaching and healing. But he was an observer too. He was a Jewish guy. And he's in the temple, and he's preaching, and he's healing, and, he's, and, and he stops, and he, and he watches. He observes. And then he would use his observations to often teach the disciples about the life they were looking at. This moment that we're going to look at today in Luke chapter 21 is huge. And it's hugely relevant to where we find ourselves today, church. Um, This was a powerful moment for them because the disciples, if you go through the stories of Jesus and his interaction with them, the disciples always thought that big impacting ministry required big important people, large groups of them, money, large events. And they, these disciples, and you're going to find in the coming weeks, and you'll probably already know this, but their mind is much like the Jewish mind. These disciples anticipated that Jesus Christ would actually throw out the religious leaders, take over the temple, And he would actually sit in the place of the high priest and then they would be his counsel. That was their anticipation. You'll find that in coming weeks. I'll defend that. You'll see it. And I don't think though, honestly, that you realize, and I'm realizing just how deeply rooted that was in them. The only difference between the Passover worshipers of Jesus or the Palm Sunday worshipers of Jesus and the disciples is they don't abandon him. They all think the same thing. Oh, he's going to take over. Oh, this is going to be great. This is going to be good for us. They all think that it's going to be good for them. But that's not what's going to happen. And he wanted them to know, and today's study is about that. These guys thought that Jesus, like us, would need large, important people, money, events, activities that draw large crowds to do ministry. But Jesus doesn't need big money donors or big-named people, or even big public events to accomplish his plan, or to even establish his kingdom, because his kingdom isn't built upon fame, and popularity, and money, and big groups. It's built on the power of the Holy Spirit. God's big, powerful kingdom is built through the power of the Holy Spirit, based upon individual relationships that God has with people, and their love for him, their commitment to his plan is the cash that he values. What does this have to do with this text? While they're watching lots of people give, part of your Passover celebration was bringing your annual tithes to the temple. And rich people would give large amounts of their wealth. They would give 10%. And 10% of a billion dollars is a lot more than 10% of $5. So the disciples, and you're going to see in a moment, were impressed with what people were doing and what they had built where Jesus actually started this conversation by saying, that woman who gave a quarter of a penny, she gave more than all the wealthy people because while they gave a small piece of their wealth, she gave all that she had. This this is important because it's going to go against what's in our DNA because Jesus didn't need the money. He had already shown Peter that he could take money out of a fish's mouth if he needed it. That just happened weeks before. Money isn't a problem for God. It's a problem for us if we think that's how God does work, but it's not a problem for God. And and for Jesus to start this conversation, you'll see how it goes, for Jesus to start is very significant. So here we go. Jesus explains his point here to the disciples amidst all of the fanfare of Passover and the money that's being thrown around during this week. Jesus says in Luke 21 verse 3, I tell you the truth, that poor widow has given more than all of the rest of them. For they have given a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything she has. So please, I need you to pay attention this morning because it's really important if you're watching today to know that you do not have to be rich or or influential or even eloquent of speech or able to sing like Katie or Chad. You don't even have to come from a moral, religious background to be used by God. All you have to do is give everything to Him. And and church, if you give 10% of your wealth to Him and and you're rich, it's not enough for Him. And I'm not talking about giving money to the church. I'm talking about giving your life for God's work. All of it, every minute of every day. The question that's being asked right now among believers is, I understand every relationship being important for me to share Christ with people. But are you telling me that I should let the chips fall where they may in this country? Uh, I I have the right to speak up. And the question is, what do you value? Jesus didn't value the... Let's pray, and then we're going to get into it. Lord Jesus, uh, may the weakness of Mark not keep the message from the hearts of your people. Help us, O God, to hear from you and not from me. I have opinions, but they're not relevant in this pulpit. So may your words speak loudly. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So Jesus just, he just told the disciples that that poor woman who gave a penny or a quarter of a penny gave more than the rich people. And you know how the disciples are at this point. The disciples have been listening to Jesus ramble on about things they didn't understand forever. It's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So that must have rung, that must have just watered off their back like most of the things Jesus says. Now, Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, that's kind of rude. But when he's walking to be arrested, he's going to tell the disciples again in a couple of weeks in our text. He's going to tell them once again that he is going to die. And they are going to say, well, now you're speaking plainly to us. Up to this point, they don't understand anything he says. I mean, some stuff they understand. They know he's the only one that can give them eternal life, but their mind is a jumble of fog in his teaching. So they must have heard him ranting on about that woman and thought that a woman, that's fine. Why do I think that? Because of verse five. Some of his disciples began talking about, and listen, look at the adjectives, about the majestic stonework of the temple and the memorial decorations on the wall. But Jesus said, the time is coming when all of these things will be completely demolished. I'm telling you, boys, not one stone will be left on top of another. Leave it to Jesus to ruin the moment. Uh, this is, this uh, rang to me a little bit like saving up for a trip to the Grand Canyon and finding the perfect time of the year to go when it's not too hot and you can enjoy it, maybe hike down in the canyon. And, and you've waited in line and you've paid for your ticket for your car. We've been there. And you finally get into the Grand Canyon National Park and you drive up and you take your kids to the edge and you're just sitting there taking it all in. The breezes, the beauty, the color of the walls, the storms in the horizon. And your 10-year-old kid says, Dad, can we go back to the hotel and swim? That's the same thing. Only it's reversed with Jesus and the disciples. The the adjectives that are used in the Greek in this text infers that they are amazed at the temple and you've seen pictures of it. Not the real temple, but but mock-ups of it. They are amazed. It's huge. It's high. The Holy of Holies is built from ornate stone And you can see it from every part of the huge temple grounds. And the disciples, even after Jesus just said, that woman gave more than the rich people, they're walking around and they are in awe of this. And what does he do? He ruins their moment by telling them that not one stone will stay in its place on that temple. Verse 7, teacher, they ask, when is this going to happen? What sign will you show us that, that these things are about to take place? I, I want to try to help you to understand just how unnerved I believe these men were at this point. Because I think you can relate to them. Probably more than you realize. These guys resented the Jewish leaders and their relig- religious piety. They didn't like them. They may have been excited to be part of taking them down at Jesus' side, without a doubt but they probably expected to replace them or their lofty positions in that temple. While it was fathomable for them to imagine that the high priest would be replaced with Jesus and that his cohorts would be replaced with them, while they could imagine the Sanhedrin changing places with other people who were more Jesus-focused, they couldn't fathom the temple grounds being destroyed. In the same way that I think we make fun of politicians for my whole life. I mean, we all complain about how they don't do their job. We all talk about how they should be replaced. And gosh, one of the things that I found interesting since moving to Texas is the quietly spoken desire of many to secede. We should secede. And others have studied it. You know we can, Pastor Mark. We aren't really a state, we're a republic. Well, the the truth is, just a side note, and this is free, to secede as a state and a republic again, we'd have to divide into five different states, and each of them, with a new government, would then have to vote unanimously to secede. So just so you know, it's not as easy as we think. But I've heard that. But you know, when somebody says that, they don't really mean it. Because we expect, I remember, you know, there's been a lot of movies the last 10 years about Washington, D.C. falling. One of the things that was so unnerving to me when 9-11 hit was knowing that there was a plane heading for the White House or the Capitol building. Uh, When you watch movies where the Capitol building is destroyed and they do a good job CG stuff making it go away, it's kind of unnerving. Because as much as I resent Washington DC and the silly people that work there and the dumb things that they say, I actually count on them being there. I count on this country, country existing so that I can do my life. And as long as there's some sort of leadership there, I count on them. If Jesus walked in here this morning and says, I've got good news and bad news. What's the good news? I'm in control. What's the bad news? I'm going to destroy the United States of America. For those of us who grew up in the church, we always heard by those who study in times things, we always heard that what was going to happen is what the Americas, United States of America is never seen in prophecy. They don't have a clue. Just side note. But that's what they said. And I remember hearing that as a kid. But the application was, so save America. Now there's a problem with that. If it's prophetic truth, you can't stop God any more than the Jews can stop God. And I think the reason we can relate to what they must have been feeling is while they're walking around the temple and Jesus is rebuking the leaders and he's turning the tables over. And while Jesus is, is actually... Um, Mushy for that woman who gave a quarter of a penny as opposed to the people that are giving thousands of dollars. I think the disciples are all, I love Jesus, he's so cool. Man, I'm sure glad we're about to take over this place. And what did Jesus just say? There's not gonna be a place to take over very soon. That's why they asked, how will we know? Give us a sign. Why? Because they wanted to relax until that sign hit. If they know what the signs are, they have some level of control in their life. God, if you will just tell us When should we be prepared for the nuclear bomb that's gonna take this temple down? They didn't believe it was that day. They wanted signs, why? Because that made them feel better, just like us. Why do people run to prophecy when the world is upside down? Because we wanna know if this is the end or should I keep paying taxes? Is it time to max out my credit cards? The answer's no. Because you don't know when he's coming back. If we figure it out, and I can guarantee it, let's max out our credit cards. You don't need to take loans out, just max out your credit cards. You want to live free, and that's what they wanted. They must have been unnerved. Well, Jesus just said don't be impressed with what you can count on, including wealth. I'm more impressed with that woman's penny than I am that guy's millions. Don't be impressed with these buildings. They're going to fall. Well, when? Give us a sign, verse 8. He replied, Don't let anyone mislead you. Sign number one. For many will come in my name claiming I'm the Messiah. And they'll say, The time has come. But don't you believe them. Sign number two, verse 9. And when you hear of wars and insurrections, don't panic. Yes, these things must take place first. But the end won't follow immediately. So the ironic part of side number one is when he said that, the disciples must have gone, check. Because there were always already people around. Josephus, a historian that was not a follower of Jesus, records that there were at least 300 people at the, during the life of the one who was killed on the cross, Jesus, to claim to be the Messiah. He points out that Jesus was unique in that people said that he did miraculous things. But Josephus, a a Jewish historian during the life of Christ, claimed that there was near 300 already claiming that. Jesus just said, when you hear other people saying the Messiah is here, when you people claiming to be the Messiah, don't believe them, but that's the first sign. The second sign is interesting because it was just beginning to happen during Christ's life. In 70 AD, what Jesus described, the temple being destroyed, takes place. And what happens is Rome ransacks the city of Jerusalem. And why does he do it? Because the Jews are tired of being under Roman control. They have whipped up anger and an army, and they run the Roman leadership out of the city of Jerusalem, and they claim to be a Hebrew nation. As a result... Rome's king says, no way, I'm not going to let this stand. These are insurrectionists. These are people who have declared war on Rome. I'm not going to let it stand. And he sends his army in. And as you know about Roman history, they don't just kill people. They destroy their icons, and the temple was the icon. It was the picture of all things Jewish. So Jesus' prophecy that this temple will not stand, and there won't be one rock on another rock, was fulfilled in 70 AD, specifically and exactly as Jesus said. When he told, they asked him for a sign, he gave them two. The first sign was already taking place. Many were claiming to be the Messiah. The second sign was that, uh, that there would be insurrections, declaring war. And that's exactly what happened. Insurrectionists rose up, declared to be the deliverers of the of, of Hebrew, Hebrew nation. They run out the Romans, and the Romans come in and destroy them. I want you to notice, though, the end of verse 9. Yes, these things must take place first, but the end won't immediately follow. You see, to the Jews, everything was about being Jewish, to the Jews, everything was Hebrew. They couldn't even fathom that the world would continue without a Hebrew nation, that wasn't in their thinking. They couldn't imagine that God would do his work in the Gentile world. They couldn't even fathom that. That wasn't part of their plan. Despite the fact that at Jesus' birth, the prophet said that he will bless the people of the world, salvation to all man. Despite the fact that John the baptizer said that he would come and redeem all mankind. Despite the fact that Jesus said, my father loved the world so much that he gave me to save people, not to condemn people. Despite the fact that in Abraham's covenant relationship with God, In in Genesis, God said, I will bless the nations of the world through you. They had become so self-centered, so nationalistic in their religion as well as their belief system that they couldn't even fathom if, if Israel is to fall, what's left? Surely God will return. And of course, that's why Jesus said these things take place first, but the end won't follow immediately. Then he added in verse 10, nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom." That's how we know that this wasn't fulfilled in 70 AD. That's how we know he's talking about the end. Because you can't have, we're talking about wars. What's going to happen before the end times comes? There's going to be nations go to war against nations and kingdoms against kingdom. There will be earthquakes. There will be famines. There will be plagues. Plagues. pandemics, Sickness. In many lands. And there will be terrifying things and miraculous signs from heaven. When will these take place? Between the ransacking of Jerusalem and when the Lord comes back. There's going to be a lot of bad things that happen. This is one of the things that that makes me crazy about the teaching in the church. Guys like me, every time something bad happens to America, every time something happens when we go to war, every time there's a plague, somebody stands in a pulpit and says, the Lord's return is now near. Well, yeah, it's nearer than the last time you said that, but that doesn't mean he's coming today. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, actually prophesied what we're going through right now. Wars, ignition against nation, and plagues, and famines. Every one of these things we've experienced in our lifetime as they experienced in the generation before. Look at the dust bowl. Look at the smallpox. Look at TB. The world has had famine after famine, uh, has had plague after plague. These were things that Jesus said were going to happen before the end would come. Verse 12. But before all this occurs, fellas, there will be a time of great persecution. Oh, we signed up for the right team. You, men we'll be dragged into synagogues and prisons and you'll stand trial before kings and governors because what? You're my followers. To which Peter stood up and said, I'm a very nice person. Why would they do this to me? Because I'm a work in the world, son. Because I don't lose, even if it looks like I'm losing. Because you have put all of your hopes in an organization that won't stand because it's not an organization centered on me. I win, and those who give me everything, like that real poor girl over there, we win together. This was scary before all that occurs. During all that, before the end comes, there's going to be a time of grace persecution. You'll be dragged into synagogues and and prisons and stand trial before kings and governors. Why? Because you are my followers. Verse 13, why, Jesus? Why would you allow that? Because this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. Can I just stop for a second? I want to stop. I want you to breathe that in. I want you to look at your TV screens or the screen on your, on your phone. Look at that verse. These are Jesus' words. Do we still believe Jesus' words? Yes, the answer is yes. Why would God allow his children to be persecuted? Because it's our opportunity to tell people who are persecuting us about Jesus. Well, that isn't very nice. It is if people get saved. You see, we've made it about comfort, just like the Jews did, just like the disciples did. We made it about us, America the beautiful, Israel the beautiful, the beautiful land, the land that flows with milk and honey. Thank you, God, for taking us into the land. We'll take over from here. And Jesus is saying, it's all going to fall because it's about me. Why would there be persecution, Jesus? Because this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. So don't worry in advance about how to answer the charges against you. He knew what they were thinking. How do we prepare for persecution? You don't. I'll give you the right words, verse 15 says, and such wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to reply or refute you. Even those closest to you, for instance, your parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, they're going to betray you. They will even kill some of you. Sign up for being a follower of Jesus. And everyone will hate you because you're my followers. Um, Jesus, you're not very good at public relations. Nobody likes this. The disciples didn't. I don't. You don't. You could make the case that Jesus wasn't excited about dying on the cross. He was very excited about fulfilling his father's plan, but he does pray in the garden take this cup for me. Nobody wants to hurt. But what do we love more? Jesus or self? What did the Jews love more? Jesus or Jerusalem? That was an easy answer Jerusalem. What about us? What do we love more? These people, they're destroying our history. That bothers me too, but seriously, is a statue worth a soul? Build a relationship with a hater and tell them about Jesus. What are we doing? Ah, Getting ahead of myself. I want to remind you of a verses that I, I bring up probably every two weeks, and I'm sorry if you're bored of it. Get used to it. It's Ephesians 2. Verse 8, God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation isn't the reward for good things we've done. Why is that important? So that none of us can boast about it. You aren't so smart you accepted Christ. He called you to himself. He redeemed you. You didn't deserve it. What does it mean? It means that now we're God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can. So that. Why did he do that? Why did he, didn't he just take me to heaven? Why didn't he just take, uh, remove health problem? Why would he retool me? So that now I can do the good things he planned for me long ago. Look, when we were saved by his grace, A salvation that we didn't deserve, nor can we take credit for. He literally, by the power of the Holy Spirit, rebuilt us to be significant, significant, perfectly placed part of his kingdom plan. He has tooled you and I individually and uniquely for the gear he wants us to function in. We are not here to have a good life. We are not here to have a comfortable life. We are here to do the work of the Father. That's what we're here for, just like Jesus. A man of many sorrows, Isaiah says. We are here to serve the King of Kings who redeemed us out of his mercy and grace and left us here so that we could do those things. If you are truly God's child, then you have truly been reborn and retooled by the Holy Spirit to serve his purposes in this life. Jesus' very life, his ministry and his message offended these Jews once they learned of it and they killed him because they didn't like what he said. And since they killed him to stop his plan from happening, they're going to hate and want to silence or kill the disciples and eventually us simply because we're his servants with his message, doing his work, building his kingdom, whether we realize it or not. This persecution that the disciples would face, that he goes on later to say their disciples would face, that we will face, not only didn't surprise God but actually was part of his plan. How about that? How about Christians being killed are part of his plan? Whether it's the disciples or our brothers and sisters in Iran or China, so you just let them die, Mark? No. But what choice do we have? They have been uniquely placed where they're placed to serve the king of kings, to serve his purposes. What could possibly good come out of that? It says in this text, they can share Christ with their murderers. They're persecutors. They're haters. They can love those who hate them. You know, this whole race conversation in the church, right now the conversation acts like um, we need to be better about not being racist. If you're a racist, you already have a bigger problem than being a racist. And that is you are not under the control of the Holy Spirit. The church organically should be radical, should have radical equality, right? Julie, those are the words you've been using all week. Radical equality, not because we decided to love people of color, but because we can't help but love people of every color, of every socioeconomic status. They're not the enemy, they're the mission field. If you are tired of the racism discussion, and you are a closet racist, your problem is with God, not people's color of their skin. And if you are a Christian today and you are seeking justice through, uh, through legal means, you are looking to the wrong place to find hope. Hope cannot be found in moral laws, although moral laws are fine. Hope is found in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ who changes your identity from black poor man or rich white man or poor white man or drug addict or homosexual or liar or thief or self-righteous jerk to child of God. You are not Baptist. That makes you nothing. You are children of God. Do not defend Baptist heritage. Walk with Jesus. You are not Christians. You are followers of Jesus and there is a difference in this culture now. Follow Jesus. Jesus. Well, maybe that's the problem with my life, is I'm not following Jesus. Let me be clear. Let Jesus be clear. Following Jesus will not solve your human problem. You will be persecuted, and you will be hated, and some of us will be killed. Well, Pastor Mark, that's not very encouraging. It is if, you're more, if you have more value in being with Jesus. We'll get there in a moment. I do want to remind you of one more verse before we move on. Philippians 1. I'm sorry about that verse. If you're at home, if you're on the beach, if you're in your car, look at the verse. And maybe you're thinking, well, maybe there's a context to that that removes me from that. No, it's written to believers who are being persecuted and to us. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for Him. The privilege of suffering. That's not a privilege. Yeah, it is. The disciples after Pentecost actually counted it a privilege to share in the sufferings of Christ. Back to Luke 21, verse 18. Jesus is explaining how hard things are going to be after Jerusalem is ransacked for the disciples, for us. And he ends with this encouragement. But not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will win your souls. Um, First of all, it's easy to say, well, excuse me, Jesus, you just said some of us are going to die. Actually, we know from history, all of them are killed, except one, John, who's exiled on an island. They're all martyred for their faith. Well, how can you say not one hair of your head will perish? Because he's talking eternally. Remember earlier in his ministry, Jesus had said that no matter, no matter how bad things got, he said, look, all they can do is kill your body. We laughed about that together because that's a big deal to us. But it's only a big deal if your goal is to live as long as you can. If your goal is to have a comfortable, safe life, that's scary. In other words, what Jesus is saying is while you are, will be persecuted, while some of you will be killed, your souls are secure because they can't touch that. And since Jesus is the resurrection and the life, you will live though you die. Remember Jesus saying that to Martha at Lazarus' death? Though you die, yet shall you live. Though they can touch our soul, our body, they can't touch our soul. And by the way, Jesus is not saying here that we are saved by performing well under persecution. He's saying, if you're saved, you stand firm and your reward for faithfulness is eternal life with God. Perseverance is part of the fruit of having the Holy Spirit live within you. It's called patience in the fruit, Galatians 5 chapter. Patience, waiting on God in the midst of difficulty and trial. I want to remind you that if you are a child of God, the evidence of that, according to Romans 6, 7, and 8, is not that you walked an aisle or were baptized, but that, in fact, the Holy Spirit lives within you. And if the Holy Spirit lives within you, there is fruit of His presence. It is love, joy patience kindness goodness long suffering also translated perseverance and self-control if those are not the fruit of your life i beg of you to get saved no matter if you've taught sunday school for 30 years or you've been an elder or a pastor or not now i know that when i'm teaching this right now it kind of unsettles our maybe our doctrine and you may want to sit down and rest on eternal security, and I believe in eternal security if you're truly saved, but I just want to say something. If you do not have the evidence of God working in your life, don't argue with the pastor. Go directly to the Savior. Go to the Savior. What have we done? We debate doctrines instead of bowing to the king. If the fruit of your life is lust, if it's self-centeredness, if it's, if it's feeding your flesh, if it's uh, dissension, if it's division, all the things listed in Galatians 5, if it's disrespect for parents, don't rest on a doctrine of eternal security to get you into heaven. Go back to God and ask Him for forgiveness and thank Him for transformation. Transformation to the heart, to the child of God is not optional. It is not optional. If you do not have the fruit of the Spirit, you don't have the Spirit. And that, according to Scripture, is the difference between a saved and an unsaved person. Remember that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit. That is, by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit so you can identify people by their actions. Part of the fruit of of a life belonging to God inhabited by the Holy Spirit is perseverance. It's right in Galatians 5. If you are not sure that your life has the fruit of the Spirit, don't be proud. Go back to the Savior. Back to our text in Luke 21, though. (laughs) So the disciples' first question to Jesus was, how will we know when the temple's going to fall? Jesus answers that. Two signs. One, you're going to have a lot of people claiming to be the Messiah. Don't believe them. The second thing is there's going to be rumors, insurrections here in the city. There's going to be rumors of war take place. Then you know it's going to happen. Then he goes on to discuss what it looks like, but that's not the end. Remember he said that. That's not the end of time, the return of Christ. That's not what that is. These other things are going to happen before the end actually comes. There's going to be famines. There's going to be plagues. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be lots of difficulty. Now he's going back in verse 20 to talk about Jerusalem again. And when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you will know the time of its destruction has arrived. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills those in Jerusalem must get out, and those out in the country should not return to the city, for those will be the days of God's vengeance, and the prophetic words of Scripture will be fulfilled. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers in those days, for there will be disaster in the land and great anger against His people. They will be killed by the sword or sent away as captives to all the nations of the world, and Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles until the period of Gentiles has come to an end. Can you imagine what the disciples were thinking? What the heck have we signed up for? We are going to. And look, by the way, they don't really believe him here because in the next 48 hours, they're going to ask him to make, uh, to make them leaders in, in his kingdom. They still don't get it. Um, what's this whole, what, what is this whole, we're going to reign with you thing, Lord? How about the message on an abundant life? You have said that we're going to have life more abundantly the thief comes to kill and steal and destroy. Maybe they were thinking what you've been thinking. Excuse me, Lord. We need a strong country if we're going to do your work. Like he said to them, no, you don't. You don't even need to prepare for it or figure it out, what to say. The Holy Spirit in you will give you everything you need to say and you need to do. Like the poor woman giving all of her wealth. And here is what it will look like when the time of the Gentiles is over or what some of us consider this present time in which we're living. What's the time of the Gentiles? For the history of the world, starting with Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, I believe it is, right around 15, 16, 17, until this moment in history, until Jesus' death, the gospel message was through the nation of Israel. Come to Israel. Come to the temple. Come to the tabernacle. Be alienated into our kingdom. Meet Israel's God. He was presenting himself through there. After they rejected him and the temple veil is ripped in two, the message of the gospel went out beyond the Hebrew people. And you're going to see that in our study of Acts. When we're done with this, we're going right into Acts because I don't think we know what our task is. And it started there. So they go to Jerusalem and they start doing their thing. Pentecost comes, they get the Holy Spirit, and then persecution begins and they run for their lives from Jerusalem to Judea. The persecutors chase them to Judea. Then they go where they don't think the Jews, Jewish persecutors will go, Samaria. And from there, Paul and, his, and, and the other disciples jump off into the uttermost parts of the world. That's what's called the times of the Gentiles, where the gospel leaves the city of Jerusalem and it goes throughout the whole world through the apostles and their disciples, us. Remember, we are not the home of Christianity. We are the outpost of Christianity in the United States. Having said that, Getting back to our text, Jesus is going to tell them what it looks like when the time of the Gentiles, so this period of time, is over. That's our season, uh, our present season from around 70 AD when the end is at hand. Luke 21, verse 25. And there will be strange signs in the sun. See if this sounds familiar to you. There will be strange signs in the sun, moon, and stars. And here on the earth, the nations will be in turmoil. They'll be perplexed by the roaring seas and the strange tides. Does this sound like today at all? It's exactly what today sounds like. People will be terrified by what they see coming upon the earth. Oh no, we need to get to Mars as fast as we can. For the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Notice that it doesn't say they'll be fooled. It's really going to shake the heavens and the earth is going to act weird and it's going to get funky. We are living in funky town. I think that's actually a Motown song, right? That's what I want played next time I preach. It's true. The world is blowing up. Oh, it's not as bad as the news media says. Maybe it is, but we are the hope of the lost. Do you realize that? Maybe instead of trying to convince people that the media is wrong, maybe we should play off of their their, their story and tell people that hope is found in Jesus. Maybe instead of being angry at people who are painting and destroying historical monuments, we should go meet them and tell them where real peace is found. Well, how will I do that? I don't know. Figure it out. You're big boys and girls. Go get them. I don't like what they're doing. So? It's not about you. What if they run our country into the ground? Seriously. Our country's in trouble. You're not going to save it. If you run for office, be a godly office runner. Well, if I, don't, if I don't play dirty, I won't win. Then don't win. Lose godly. That was the disciples' concern his whole ministry. The crowd's leaving. Don't you care? Are you going to go with them? That wasn't the question, Jesus. I asked, are you going with them? No. Why aren't you going to go? Because nobody else can give me eternal life. Then be quiet and follow me. Even if you follow alone. Pick up your cross and follow me. Verse 20, uh, let's see, where are we? So verse 26, people will be terrified at what they see coming upon the earth for the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with power and great, great glory. How awesome is that? Look, Christian, Jesus is saying these things and his voice gets excited. Why? Because that's our hope or it was supposed to be. The hope of the Jews was not a good Jerusalem. It was a God that was taking care of them. The hope of Christians is not a strong country, it's Jesus. It's putting our hope in Him. It's not a good Washington, D.C. or Austin. It's not conservatism or liberalism. It's putting our hope in God. That's it. That's our hope. I. I am not saying we're not politically active. You should vote, but you should leave your heart in the box and go on with your life. Follow Jesus. Pay your taxes. Follow Jesus. Speak your mind in love, but tell them about Jesus. Then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with power and great glory. Verse 28, so when all these signs begin to happen, Stand up and look, boys, for your salvation is near. Guys, do you realize what Jesus, Jesus must have been standing up at this point and they're like, oh, so depressed, we're gonna die. Is James gonna die before John? Andrew's a big mouth, Peter talks too much. He's gonna be the first to go. And Jesus goes, look, it's going to get bad for all of you, for all of your disciples. It's going to get weird. The, work, the creation itself is going to act up. The church is going to have infighting. The world is going to be racist. It's going to be hateful. But when all these things happen, you look up, your salvation is near. Do you remember what our salvation is? It is not another four years of Donald Trump or Joe Biden. It's not. It's Jesus Christ's return. It's us being with him. You see, salvation was all about not going to hell, but about being with Jesus. It's about Jesus, my friends. Him, the name right there, it's about Jesus. It's not about Baptist history or Baptist doctrine or assembly of God worship. It's not about whatever you love in Christianity. It is about Jesus. And anything else is an idol. Anything else, including self-righteousness, it's an idol. Chase Jesus with all your heart. And everything else will take care of itself. Jesus is excited as he's saying this to the disciples. So when all these things begin to happen, stand and look up. Get up, boys, for your salvation is near. Then he gave them this illustration. Notice a fig tree or any other tree. When the leaves come out and you know without being told that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things taking place, you can know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth, this generation, he's talking about the generation that sees Christ return, will not pass from the scene until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. In other words, you can take them to the bank. Why did he teach this? Why did he tell them in the last, one of the last major conversations that we have recorded for us? 34 tells us. Watch out. Don't let your hearts be dulled by carousing and drunkenness and by worries of life. By worries of life. Don't be overwhelmed with worry. Don't let that day that Christ returns catch you unaware like a trap. For that day will come upon everyone living on the earth. Keep alert. Watch for his return. And pray that you might be strong enough to escape those coming horrors and stand Before the Son of Man. Every day Jesus went to the temple to teach, and each evening he returned to spend the night on the Mount of Olives. The crowds gathered at the temple early each morning to hear him. Chapter 22, verse 1. The festival of unleavened bread, which is also called Passover, was approaching. The leading priests and teachers of religious law were plotting how to kill Jesus, but they were afraid of the people's reaction. Then Satan entered Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12 disciples, and he went to the leading priests and captains of the temple guard to discuss the best way to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted, and they promised to give him money. So he agreed, and he began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus so they could arrest him when the crowds weren't around. Even that moment was completely under his control. Do we trust him? Do you trust him? Do you trust him with your offenses? Do you trust him with your injustices? Do you trust him with others' complaints? Do you trust him? If you don't, before you figure out racism, before you figure out the government problems, before you solve the problems of the church today or the pandemic, You better solve your own spiritual problem. Bow the knee. Lord Jesus, may I go first in bowing the knee. It's easy to pretend. In Jesus' name, I pray for your Holy Spirit to convict the hearts of your children so that we might become what you saved us to be in the first place. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great Father's Day.